This show is dedicated especially to producer Matt Auckland, who sadly passed away on the 1st of May last year. Secrets of a Dance Hit with Ridney. Hey, I'm Ridney, presenter of Secrets of a Dance here. I've been a producer for 20 years, a DJ for 23 years, Cafe Mambo Ibiza resident and three times winner of the prestigious Essential New Tune Award on Pete Tong's BBC Radio 1 Essential Selection. I've had music on labels including Defected, Tool Room, Ministry of Sound, Nervous, Size, Spinning to name but a few. And what is Secrets of a Dance here? I'm having a look and a listen to some of my favourite records from my favourite producers. Records that have been underground bangers which have gone on to be huge global hits. Join me as I lift the lid on sample clearance, how records were put together and what producers thought of these records. Join me for Secrets of a Dance here. On this week's show, my guest is a UK garage legend. Four Ivan Novellos, platinum discs, you name it. I've had the great pleasure of working with him in the studio a number of times, and he is an absolute gentleman, giving us the insight on Artful Dodgers Rewind. And of course, he was the man behind Craig David's album Born to Do It. Please welcome Mr. Mark Hill. Secrets of a Dance Hit with Ridney. Mr. Hill, welcome to the show. Ridney, how the devil are you, sir? I am good. It's really good to catch up again and, of course, talk about the amazing records that you've had. I think with this particular episode, we have to start with Rewind. <laughs> well, that, that kind of that's what kicked us off, really, wasn't it? So, yeah, that, that's definitely a good as a good a place to start as any. And uh, yeah, yeah, what what a record and what an unbelievable amount of time that's that's kind of gone between you know the initial writing and release to to where we are now and um it, um, it amazes me that it still gets played oh yeah i mean you are somebody a lot like other people i've interviewed recently who's on the 20 year anniversary this year so to give listeners a little understanding of the track uk uh, single was number two on the top 40 i believe you were number four in the netherlands uh, huge across europe bpi certified platinum and uh, obviously you went on to uh, have ivan novellos for various songwriting and so on so i mean at the beginning was there an inspiration for the track obviously i guess you just met craig and uh, things were happening here in southampton yeah it was it was a little while after we kind of met cause I, I think the first thing we actually did with craig when you know when we kind of bumped into him because i'd known him for years he'd been in and out of the studio do, doing various bits and pieces and, and kind of collaborating with Aaron soul and stuff like that so we um when pete and i got to the stage of, of actually releasing a few artful dodger records uh, all the kind of initial stuff were were bootlegs and um you know they were they were doing pretty well we like you know pressing up a thousand or two vinyl and you know giving them sale or return to shop so you know um so we were making a little bit of a name for ourselves i mean that's why we came up with artful dodger really because you know we we thought at the time being quite naive and well, probably quite rightly so is that um you know we were doing bootlegs which were a bit naughty and you know not having any experience in the industry we thought we better kind of protect ourselves by like you know keeping it low-key and just coming up with a pseudonym and we thought artful dodger kind of summed it up because it was kind of a london sound as we know and uh, you know artful dodger being a shady character we thought yeah it kind of sort of <laughs> struck a chord with us so we thought yeah yeah well go for that 
And uh, after three or four bootlegs in, we thought, oh, you know, now's the time we, we need to start, you know, putting out some original material. But, you know, at the time, we didn't really know anyone um, that could vocal that kind of track, you know, or, or not that we were kind of working with at the time. And it just so happened that, that Pete and I were playing at um, the Old Oriental in Southampton. You were, yeah. Um, classic. And uh, and Craig was either DJing, and you've got to bear with me, man. I'm 46 years old now, so, so some of the grey matters failing on me. But um, I think he was either DJing or MCing downstairs. He was MCing, and do you know who he was MCing for? Was it Flash? It was, uh, it was a gentleman by the name of James Abila. No way. Yeah. Because I know, like, uh, was it, um, was that, well, I think that might be one of the nights that Adam Savage um, yes. used, to, used to promote or something. Yeah. So, yeah, and bizarrely, we kind of got chatting, and yeah, and he actually pulled one of our vinyl, um, the, the, the bootleg olive, you're not yes. alone, that he pulled out of his, um, his record box. And, you know, we kind of got chatting and said, look, you know, we really want to um, really start doing some original stuff. And I remember him texting me the following day, just like a random text going show me the Benjamins oh, really? <laughs> I was just like I was like what, what's he talking about you know, I, was, I was a little bit kind of yeah I had no idea what he was talking about um, and um, yeah obviously yeah he was kind of keen to get involved and, and the first track we did you know, Pete and I were working on a kind of almost like a US house track I suppose which was uh, what, what you're going to do yeah. and, um, and Craig couldn't it wasn't really his cup of tea so he kind of you know, didn't have any kind of inspiration to, to write over that one. So what we did is kind of we redid the track, um, and you know, kind of gave it a sort of heavier baseline, gave it that kind of sort of two-step garage feel. Uh, you know, at the time, and, it, and it, I basically used an old um, R and B kit that I was using for some remixes. Okay. And yeah, and, and so he kind of put a vocal t to that and then we kind of, you know, the idea was to put the, the you know, put the vocal on both versions and re release them as an A and a B side with a two-step version on the B side and um, that's what kind of led us to being, uh, that record eventually got, you know, once we pressed it up and got it out there, I think Spoonie from the Dream Team phoned up and um, and said that he had some some guys in London that ran a small label that, that loved it and wanted to release it and that was public demand. I think at the time, at the time we'd done the deal with them and we were taking the taking the masters up for that um, Craig and I in the meantime had been working on Rewind and um, and, and bizarrely I mean it had been quite a while because I think we had started it I can't you know maybe months before the actual version that we finished but basically the, the computer decided it didn't want to play ball and um, crashed halfway through the session and corrupted all the files I was going to say this is one of my favourite stories that you've that you've told me over the years oh, it was a absolute nightmare obviously you know it's going back this is a, this is an old Mac so it, it, you know there, there wasn't the kind of you know auto save when the computer crashes you know it properly crashed back then and it corrupted the file and, and the annoying thing was you know we'd had crashes in the past where we could kind of piece together the audio that we'd used but this one all I remember and at the time there wasn't really wasn't really a Google or anything or like you know YouTube videos you could go and uh, check out so it just kept, kept flashing up on the screen like end of file and, you know, Neil, um, the guy that ran the studio with me, Neil Kerr, yeah. uh, we just kept staring at the screen, desperately trying to figure out a way around it without having to shut. Because we knew, like, the chances are it hadn't been saved. Um, and so if we shut the computer down and rebooted it, we might, we might lose it. So we were doing everything we could and just kept flashing up end of file. It was just like one of those weird, like, I don't know if you watch the IT crowd where oh, you get those, yeah, that, that, those kind of error screens come up. It was just, you know, windows on top of windows and just saying end of file, end of file. It was just, you know, it was a real kick in the teeth. And uh, yeah, there was nothing we could do about it. Completely gone. You know, we, we eventually shut the computer off 
booting it back up and there was literally nothing. Um, there, there was like an unusable audio file. So we'd lost every single bit of it. You had, is this right? You had cut a copy onto a, a TDK tape. So that yeah, was the only yeah. version you had, right? Yeah, because Craig, uh, Craig made a habit whenever we kind of worked on anything, um, we would burn off a, a cassette and he would take it back to his um, his flat in Holyrood and, and blast it through his ridiculous... Um, <laughs> I mean, he had the biggest sound system like you know, comparatively to the to the size of his flat, Lovely. and um, yeah, it wasn't until months later where he he just played the tape. You know, I think we were off to um, St Mary's, and um, yeah, he played it to me, and we were like, oh man, this is really good. You know, there's definitely something here, and I don't even think. I think it, it 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 had the kind of chorus idea, it had the baseline idea, but I, you know I don't even think we had a verse for it. Um, but we just we just saw the potential and thought, oh, we've just got to get back in the studio and finish it, really. But from a production idea, sort of the vibe of the track, that was that was all there, was it? Yeah, yeah. I think you know definitely that you know the contrast between the kind of sort of skippy bit and and going into that sort of half time um, chorus. Yeah. Uh, and and the baseline was there, and the you know the drum sounds were there. Um, but you know it was it was it was pretty raw but we could definitely you know it was definitely exciting enough to think oh you know we need to get back in and, and reproduce it so yeah we just had to play the cassette and play and and try and remember which sounds we used and um, yeah build it from scratch you know and I think obviously you know it got bigger and better and, and the more we got into it I think we spent almost like 24 hours in the studio we went right because like, we, we were in a basement anyway and, and didn't have any access to any daylight so we were just kind of you know apart from a few coffee breaks just knuckled down and you know got on with it really the the fun thing is then that what everybody knows is essentially version two of Rewind. Version one lost. Well, I wonder, I do wonder if Craig's still got the cassette. He must do. Because that, that would be amazing. Wouldn't um, it? Yeah. I mean, God knows, I don't know anyone with a cassette player, to be fair. But, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd be intrigued to know whether he actually kind of you know, kept hold of it or whether he's discovered it years later. Because, yeah. um, you, know, you know, I'd love to hear the difference. I'd love to hear, you know, like how much it changed between that version and the. And you know the one that came to be released. Yeah, and what? And at the time when you were doing the kind of two-steppy garage drum patterns and so on, was that a very conscious thing or was it experimental? Because a lot of people have, w- would say people like yourself, MJ Cole, Grant Nelson, the Dream Team, even pioneers in that kind of particular way of programming drums. Did you feel at the time? it was something fresh that you were doing or had you heard it before on pirate stations in London or how, how had that kind of made its way to, to your consciousness? It was a little bit of both. I mean, we certainly don't claim to be the first to make that beat because I know um, Tina Moore came before us in uh, you know, a few other tracks. I think some of the Nice and Ripe stuff and uh, Ramsey and Fenn stuff I think was was prior. But we, you know, I, I was kind of approaching it from the fact that, you know, from the point of view, me and Pete were at the time looking at making kind of speed garage, four to the floor, yeah. house music and stuff. And I was just a little bit bored with that kind of drum pattern. Mm. Um, and just was looking at ways of, of kind of, you know, almost like making it a little bit more breakbeat. And I, I was taking, you know, the R&B drums that I was using. So I was part of an R&B remix um, outfit at the time um, with two guys called Mo and Sippo and Tony Briscoe as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Was, uh, and so the, so the four of us were, you know, we were kind of taking acapellas off imports, US imports, and trying to get a remix done and, and up to the UK record labels before they, they released the UK version. And so, it, you know, it kind of sort of stems from, you know, loving that 
loving the kind of soulful and and the sounds we were using for that, um, and kind of blending that with, you know, the idea of doing dance records and, and speed garage records and, and house records in effect. And it was just like it, it was, you know, it was a case of trying both out. And then at the same time, obviously hearing records like um, Love Bug, Ramsey and Fenn, yeah. you know, Tina Moore, Never Gonna Let You Go, and all those sorts of stuff. It's just oh, actually, there's a few, you know, there's a few other people doing similar sort of things. And you know, th- now we've got enough records to cobble together a DJ set of, of stuff that kind of sounded like that. They yeah. weren't just one-off tracks. I remember us dropping Moving Too Fast when we did that it, at the Academy when Pete was DJing. And that, you know, I think at the time, that was more or less the only kind of two-step track we had. And we were, I think we were playing it from CD um, alongside what Pete was playing just to kind of hear it. And, and you know, it stuck out like a sore thumb back then, but it wasn't mm. long before there was enough of that stuff coming through to then actually, ha- you know, almost have like a kind of two-step UK garage section when we were playing out. Yeah. So Spoonie got hold of the record. Um, it found its way to public demand. I guess the white labels had already circulated. I remember, again, as I've said in other episodes, being at Uptown Records in London. And I, I believe it was either Paul Farris or ATFC that said, this this is a hot record. And all it was was a white label with, I think, either you or P had just written R in a <laughs> black marker on it. And, Very possibly. And, and that was that. And I, I, am I right in saying with those white labels, you know, it got out to the pirate stations across London and a combination, I'm guessing, you know, am I making the right assumption here that those kind of things were helping make it happen or was there anything else that was kind of helping push it? I can't, um, I, I'm trying to think the, the, the process on Rewind, I mean, because what you're going to do was very much kind of, you know, we put that out ourselves on, on White Label first and that's what kind of yeah. um, drew attention uh, to public demand and then they signed it and kind of pressed up their version. I can't remember if Rewind, I can't remember if we actually did a White Label run of Rewind or whether public demand took that as the sort of second option. Um, okay. And, and you know, maybe they actually put out the White Label, but I mean, this is where my memory fails me slightly. I can't remember which way run we did it but I mean, it's possible that you know um, public demand did like a white label run or, or we did on centric or whatever sure just just to get the you know the hype going on the record right yeah 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 and um, and then you know I think public demand gave an official release um, on you know on their vinyl you know like a proper proper artwork and all that sort of stuff mm. and uh, and it absolutely blew up I mean it sold you know sold thousands if not tens of thousands of vinyl and then obviously got, you know that's where um, Relentless um, who, you know part of ministry at the time so when it kind of came to their attention because they you know they, they very much had their ear to the ground and, yeah. and spotted the record and um, and I think that you know that it wasn't long after the you know success of like I think Shanks and Bigfoot I can't remember when that was actually released not a hell of a long time before no it was in that same sort of time wasn't it 99 yeah uh, that was Sweet Like Chocolate right uh, yeah yeah so um, you know, I think I think some you know some records are really kind of you know shifting serious um, copies on vinyl. So mm. you know that's when it, it, it you know I think you know radio were were playing stuff quite heavily, and um, yeah, and I th- you know I think that's obviously what led Relentless to come in and, and sign Rewind from public demand and yeah. um, you know go for a full on commercial release. Uh, you know, sh- you know, shot out a dodgy video and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was in Fabric, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. You know, not. I don't think it was that long after Fabric was open, I don't think. So, were you surprised with the kind of reaction to Rewind? Was it? Did you and Pete think, 
okay, this could be a really good club banger, or you know, were you excited and and you sat with Craig and Pete and going, this could be massive, or you know, how did you kind of feel? Was there a stage where you went, you know, this is a monster now? Yeah, yeah, there were there were there were quite there were a few records I'd say that we were kind of like you know Craig and I were, were working on and we, you know we were always kind of pleasantly surprised with how they were sounding we used to kind of kid ourselves I remember we used to, we used to walk over to um, Ocean Village a cafes in Ocean Village and kind of take the mic and go oh yeah this one's going to sell millions this one's going to sell two million and then you know when we did like seven days stuff oh yeah this one's going to do four million and wow. it was just you know it was just like banter a couple of complete like numpties from Southampton with no you know no foothold in the record business at all but here's the thing it come true. It come true, man. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the mental thing, I suppose. You know, like you know, we were we were really excited. You know, we were getting that kind of wow. This is this is something special. And and the same sort of thing came from Rewind. Rewind, I think. You know, it was obviously a fun record. Um, and you know, we even kind of borrowed some of his vocals from from one of his other tracks last night because we couldn't find a, a different, you know, a decent vocal to put over the um, uh, over the kind of verse bit. Yeah. So we ended up like kind of you know doing a bit of creative recycling um and uh but yeah i mean we knew we knew it was an exciting record you know from, from the time sort of yeah craig and i kind of finished it in the studio we knew that it was hot and but you know we kind of thought oh, it's, it's a bit of a novelty record and we we weren't sure at the time how the kind of breakdowns would go um the kind of sort of half step particularly for chorus you think you know you expect to kind of go up in a chorus and we decided to kind of you know rip up the rule book a little bit and and you know drop everything out and just drop it down to like a bass line and and uh, you know a half time in a drum but you yeah, there was something that really excited us about it and we didn't really have anything to lose so we thought well you know just you know stick it out you know let's see how it'll do but it wasn't until i think pete tong played it while i was uh i was having a i was driving around as a learner in my girlfriend's car at the time around um where was it bristol or bath somewhere like that and i remember like it, it kind of came on pete tong's show and uh i was struggling enough driving as it was <laughs> But I ended up like, I think I ended up, well, no, no, I drove up onto a, I drove up onto a roundabout and actually parked on the roundabout. And just so I could kind of sit, yeah, yeah, so I could sit and listen to it. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, it was, and you know, that back then, you know, what a buzz to, you know, kind of hear one of your records played on Radio 1. You know, that, that was, that was the kind of eureka moment, I suppose, thinking, oh yeah, we've actually got, you know, we, we've done something, you know, huge here. So, um, yeah. Had it already been doing things before Pete played it, or was that just kind of the icing on the cake, really? I think on the underground, but that was, you know, I think that was the first, well, that's my kind of, yeah, in my mind at the time, that was my landmark, you know, now, you know, this could actually go, this could be commercial. Um, You know, yeah, I just kind of remember hearing that and, you know, feeling, you know, that we've kind of sort of crossed over into uncharted waters, Mm. you know, as far as we were concerned. And, And did you find, I mean, Obviously, Rewind went on to do massive, massive things, number two on the chart. I mean, did, did things change overnight for you? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, it was insane. Give, give us an idea of kind of how things sort of changed for you guys overnight. <laughs> well, at the time, and I think we were still pretty skint, to be fair. Um, but, you know, it, we kind of went from... 
having to bolt the doors of the studio to, to keep bailiffs at bay. Um, uh, you know, we had a group of group of young lads from Eastleigh that we were teaching, uh, you know, to try and kind of make, make a few quid in the studio. And at one point, we had to lock them in the studio because bailiffs would oh, like banging the door. And you know, and and you know, in a matter of weeks, we've gone from that to the euphoria of having like a hit record on our hands, but still having that. You know, because obviously the the money trail t- it takes a while to come through. Yeah, royalties. <laughs> yeah, take a little while. Yes, yeah, so I remember that. You know, the first Ivan Novello Awards having to to go up with like you know not enough not enough money in my pocket to make a phone call on the way back to get my girlfriend to pick me up. Wow. Um, you know, getting all the way to the Ivers, winning an Iver, coming back and then having to walk all the way from Haven to Portsmouth because like I literally had 10 pence in my pocket because oh, she called because she call screened um, but like the actual you know when it kicked into the answer phone it used up my coin and that was it I was wow. done you know and I had no way of getting in touch with her I had to walk all the way to yeah from Portsmouth all across you know like all the kind of um, nature reserve between yeah. Haven and Portsmouth that's not all along fun. the water that's not fun no no especially not when you're wearing a really dodgy suit and shoes no. so I actually wore a hole in the bottom of my shoe oh mate I I didn't, I did, you never told me that before. I didn't realise that was a thing. Wow. Ah, there we go. I'm saving it for your podcast, mate. Wow, there you go. It just goes to show, you know, I think the perception a lot of the time is that when a record's happening, that, you know, everything's cool and rosy and it's not always the case. That's mad to know that, actually. Yeah, it was. It was a yeah, it was a bizarre time because, as you say, like you know, the perception is that you know we should be you know rolling in it, and you yeah. know it took a long a long time to one pay off the debts that we'd already managed to get into, but yeah, to actually see any kind of real benefit from it. But you know, not to knock it, it was you know it was an incredible time. It was very exciting. Um, you know, not without its stress. Obviously, when when mm. stuff kicks off like that, you know, there was a lot of kind of stuff going on in the background, and you know, it took a long time to kind of get to that point. So, um, but yeah. Uh, you know, what an incredible experience to go from just running a little recording studio in Southampton to then, you know, suddenly being on top of the pops seven times. And yeah, you were another uh, of the interviewees that's been on top of the pops. Had any of them done a ridiculously embarrassing dance that they'll never, ever live down? I don't know that they've done that. Did you do that? Oh, yeah, rewind video. Well, the rewind performances on top of the pops are legendary, mate. My dancing, me and Pete, and um, yeah, post, check post it out. this. Everyone get onto YouTube, Google. <laughs> Artful Dodger Rewind Top of the Pops Legendary. we need to Legendary. see this and it is available on YouTube as, much, oh, as, as, as hard as hard as I would try to have them taken down um, they, you can <laughs> still still check it out love it so post Rewind uh, what was it straight into moving too fast I mean did the idea of, of the album all about the stragglers come together quite quickly or was it that more singles followed and the album kind of came from that you know how did it flow yeah it was it was, it was kind of it was very haphazard um, because we had been you know we were kind of very much like you know doing it guerrilla style we were just making records putting them out on vinyl uh, you know and signing them to whoever would have them really we, you know there was no plan there was no, it was certainly no plan to make an album. Oh wow! Okay, we were literally just throwing out white labels, and obviously moving too fast got signed to a different label that got signed to um, uh, Locked On mm. and XL. Uh, uh, and then when we did um, Woman Trouble, which came, um, I think that came next. Yeah, that came out on FFRR. So that you know, at that point, they, you know, it, and obviously they, you know, they, they'd been all been big records. It was at that point where we were kind of, oh yeah, maybe we should think about. You know, doing a deal for an album, and um, and that you know that was quite problematic because obviously we 
already had to license a couple of tracks in from various labels. Oh, right, so, yeah. so really, kind of at that point, FFRR were, were like the only option to, to do the album because at least they had one of the records and they had a relationship with the guys at Public Demand. Yeah. And I know sort of spending time or lucky enough to spend time in the studio with you that you still have all of the parts for the Artful Dodger stuff, Craig's first album and, and so on. How, how does it feel revisiting tracks like Rewind and Moving Too Fast and Woman Trouble? You know, do you go back and think, yeah, I'm really happy with, with what we did at the time? Or Yeah, I think so. I, I wouldn't, um, I mean, you know, listening to the, the quality, bearing in mind the equipment we had at the time, I can't, you know, I, I give myself a break and think, you know, with what we were actually using to create that stuff, um, yeah, it's amazing what we achieved but uh, yeah I do, I've never really thought about going back and revisiting them or remixing them because the, they kind of are what they are and you know as I said it still amazes me that those records still get played but they do you know regularly on radio and um, you know and re- still still in clubland I actually picked up a, a couple of boxes the other day with all the original kind of ADAT multi-track tapes of um, Craig's Born to Do It on it which um, at some point I really want to you know I hope they're still playable um, Do you want to borrow a DAT player? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll bring one down. Yeah, but- yeah, I've got, I've literally, I've got, you know, I've got boxes full of DAT tapes that, that have probably got original versions and remixes and acapellas and all sorts wow. of stuff. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, I need to spend a day. Um, well, it'll probably be a lot longer than a day just burning all that off and digitizing it. A regular question that comes in on the email for the interviewee is actually what equipment you were using at the time. You said you, said you were, you know, quite proud of what you achieved with the equipment you had at the time. Are you able to talk through some of the bits that were in the studio, key key sort of elements of studio equipment that you would go to items, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So we had, um, it was quite, you know, we kind of prided ourselves on the fact that we were, you know, we started out digitally. We didn't like have any analog tape and stuff. We had, um, everything was done um, on a kind of very, very early basic sequencer. So we were using obviously an Apple Mac with um, Studio Vision Pro, Opcode Studio Vision Pro. And then we had uh, a sound card, which was um, DigiDesign Session 8, which was like an early, a kind of early precursor to Pro Tools. So it was like eight track hard hard disk recording yeah. so we were able to record you know eight tracks of hard disk and then we would have like two adats that we could then bounce down those the eight channels we'd use on the computer we could kind of edit mess about with and then bounce them down onto adat so yeah. it would you know ultimately give us 24 you know uh, 24 tracks Brilliant. um di- digital at the end so uh, you know and they were just obviously you know using time code or whatever to to sync all those together i was going to say did, did that make life tricky trying to sequence things and and get it all I, I guess the midi sync was still pretty good back in 97 98 in in that it wouldn't wander too much or anything like that yeah it wasn't bad but um I mean, obviously, at the time we were running all the like all the synths. So we were using, like, for instance, like JV ten eight. Well, we had like a JV eight eighty, JV ten eighty Roland, JV twenty eighty with like different sound cards in, like an orchestral yeah. sound card and various bits and bobs. 
yeah, yeah. And we had all the emu stuff, like emu, proteus, emu, MoFat, and all that sort of stuff. So, and and they were obviously all running live. So, like, we were only you know recording actual audio onto yeah. their computer yeah. um, because there were no plugins. Um, so we were literally just chopping. Uh, you know, I think doing kind of basic editing. We kind of, you could kind of get right in on the waveform and and do crossfading and stuff. But there wasn't a hell of a lot you could do with the audio other than just kind of record it and, and uh, copy and paste. Um, and then everything else. Uh, what amazed me, you know, we had a Soundtracks Topaz desk, which cost about a grand at the time. And it was complete, like not automated. You know, very simple kind of EQ and compression. I don't even, I don't even know if it had compression on it. it must have had compression on it. But um, yeah, re- like really basic mixer. Um, and um, yeah, we had to, you know, when we when we finished a track, we'd ha- we'd have a, like a have to write down a timeline, and we were using like a, p- a pencil with bits of sellotape to kind of like you know push four faders up yeah. from the BBs at the same time and we'd have it written out so like one minute in you'd have to like you know turn the vocals down or turn the you know turn that up so so we were literally automating ourselves on the fly mate people have got it so easy these days haven't they i just laugh i spend like the five you know the first five ten minutes whenever i come into the studio now i just laugh and go this is so easy (laughs) it's just the idea the idea of just being able to press save uh, and have all your plugins and because the amount of times that we would have you know like we'd have to write down we had like sheets of paper we'd have to write down every setting on every um like every synth or all the all the channel settings on the desk, and uh, you know, because if we ever had to come back and revisit something, if it wasn't finished, we'd have to completely like get all the levels the same, and it never, yeah, yeah, and it never sounds. And the and the, the problem is that you know when you kind of even when you program a track today and you save it, it always sounds different the next day. Like anyway, just psychologically, mm. it never sounds yeah. the same as as you know it is when you're kind of working on it. So add that to the fact that we thought we might have plugged something in wrong, or there might be a level wrong so we'd have to painstakingly go through every wow. you know every pan pot every volume every eq on the desk all the settings um you know you know we'd have to get up all the particular sounds on the on the um synths and all that sort of stuff and uh it, it was insane it took ages you know it was like an hour two hours a day just doing that yeah set up before you even start going into the track right yeah it actually get like it's actually giving me a headache thinking about it to be fair. Yeah, best not to, mate. So, I mean, at the same time with everything that was going on with the Artful Dodger, um, you and Craig are writing Craig David's Born to Do It album. Is that right? Did they? It, was it running at the same time? Or yeah, 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 completely. It was. Um, it was a kind of sort of trade off for Craig because uh, you know I, I, we knew Craig was a bigger artist than just kind of a, a, a feature on a few records. You know, he was a great writer and uh, you know a phenomenal vocalist. And uh, because we, you know, we were skint at the time, we, you know, in return for him. Um, featuring on Alpha Dodger Records because he was very much kind of part of that project, you know, even even emceeing on some of our remixes and stuff. Um, I thought it was only fair really to kind of help him develop his own sound for him, you know, because he wanted, you know, he wanted to be an artist. He, he loved R&B, you know, that was his first love. And um, so, you know, and, and we had, I had the benefit of a free studio, so I could offer him that. And um, yeah, really, we just sort of started writing together and um, sort of putting our heads together on, you know, my influences musically and um, you know his R&B influences kind of gelled and created this you know quite unique kind of R&B soul sound that was um, yeah kind of uniquely British and obviously slightly influenced by the garage stuff and, yeah. and that stuff I was doing but also influenced by some of the R&B remixes I was doing and also you know 
things I was listening to, like, you know, at the time, like U2 and Sting and, you know, all that sort of stuff that, you know, we were really sort of throwing it all in the melting pot and seeing what came out. And and the first sort of, I think it was, I remember you saying, is it like four or five of what ended up being born to do it was what you initially had that you guys went to London and kind of shop around the labels. Is is that right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure um, like Walking Away was on it, Seven Days was on it. I don't think Fill Me In was because that kind of, that was born out of a remix we did. Okay. Um, that came a bit later. But yeah, I think it had, if I remember rightly, it had like Seven Days, Walking Away, Time to Party, Rendezvous, and last night, I think, was like, you know, the, all those tracks, which, you know, some of them were ended up being like the final versions on the, on the album as well. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you so know, the, the kind of demos in inverted commas ended up being what we know. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we redid a few of the tracks in kind of, you know, big studios in London with and Steve Fitzmaurice did um, fill me in and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think... You know, quite a few, you know, handful of the tracks that went on the final album were the original demos from that studio, from that soundtrack's Topaz desk, and and um, unbelievable, yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So, uh, did it? Was it easy to get those records signed? You know, what was the reaction when you were shopping them round to to labels? Was it a good reaction, or did it take a long time for that to all happen, or was it, did you just kind of rub your eyes and go, "Wow, I can't believe everything's kind of hitting now"? Yeah. Well, the reaction to the music was always great. Um, they 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 got it. They loved the records. They knew that the Artful Dodger stuff was hot, but they didn't quite get. Um, get Craig as an artist mainly because I think in the meetings he wasn't you know he wasn't allowed to kind of talk and he, he was quite young at the time and quite sort of shy and and um, didn't really come out of himself but uh, yeah so there were a few kind of odd reactions and I know there were a few people that kind of deeply regretted afterwards not signing him but um, yeah I, yeah, I think there was you know it was a really really good reaction to, to the music and um, certainly you know and his singing ability and um, you know I think once things started really blowing with Rewind um, it was it was kind of I think at that point it was a done deal more or less with um, with Wildstar anyway and that and that just leaves you with part of your fantastic legacy in everything that was happening with Artful Dodger, which, you know, so much success from that. Um, Craig's Born to Do It album went on and was unbelievably successful, wasn't it? To a point where even, you know, like you say, with the Rewind and things you did as Artful Dodger and as Craig, you can hear those on the radio you know, or on TV today at any point, can't you? They're still used loads. Yeah, that, I mean, that album was a phenomenon, really, you know, even more so than, you know, I think Stragglers as an album was obviously kind of, you know, a bit more unique and and, and quite kind of interesting as, as it was a, you know, a kind of one of the few like UK Garage actual albums. But um, yeah, as for kind of pure pop and commercial success, um, you know, what kind of Born to Do It did still, still blows my mind after all this time and the, and the fact that it's still hung around and it you know people have got such fond memories of it and yeah. um, you know it's kind of it, it went on to influence a, you know a hell of a lot of people I think unbelievable isn't it really it's uh, 20 years has passed and must must feel like yesterday right it does it's it's really it's deeply disturbing how quickly well you know on one hand I mean I've got such kind of fuzzy memories of a lot of it and it, it, there's quite, you know quite a, quite a lot lot of it that I sort of pushed down deep into my psyche um, but but, uh, it, you know, it honestly feels like 
you know, I can't, can't believe that those records are that old. Um, you know, obviously a hell of a lot has changed uh, in the way we consume music and in the way we make music and all that sort of stuff. So that you know, so there is a, a massive leap when you kind of think back of, of you know how how we were even kind of promoting tunes and stuff back then. So. Um, but yeah, it's you know it has gone by quick. And post Craig and Born to Do It, was it at that point you were happy to sort of say, Artful Dodger for me is kind of done. I know you were working with lots of artists and vocalists at that stage. We we kind of done with Artful Dodger at that point. How how did you feel? As incredibly successful as Artful Dodger was, uh, it, you know, it was also really really stressful. Kind of going, you know, that meteoric rise and being sort of thrust into the mainstream and having to kind of learn on your feet, because we were very naive you know when it came to the kind of music business and all that sort of stuff and very wet behind the ears and so you know so we made some you know i'm not going to say mistakes i don't re- I'll, I'll never say i regret any of it because you know it was it was a bit of a kind of weird web of stuff that went on but you know you can maybe without some of it you know the whole thing might not have happened so i'm not going to say i regret it because i'm still you know it's 20 years later and i'm still making music for a living which is which you know i feel incredibly blessed to be doing so so there's no regrets but yeah but it was it, it was tough carrying on the artful dodger project for a number of reasons um you know characters that were involved in it um just the pure like the madness of doing because because you know we were doing like three shows a night sometimes so we were obviously because we were a pop act we were doing like under 18s nights um, because of the kind of pop side of stuff then we were going and doing a commercial club then we were doing an underground club at points I was like living on Red Bull my brother was driving us around in a, in a van and we were doing like three shows and with all that going on the music the travelling the you know the touring Europe going back and forth to America and stuff it just I just really kind of burnt myself out and the idea um, we did talk to Warners because um, Warners took over London and we spoke to them about doing a possible second album but by that point you know kind of I was I was working on my own Pete wasn't um, with the band anymore and you know we were still having to kind of do stuff and work with public demand and um, and it was just I thought yeah I'm done I, I really just wanted to concentrate on you know what, what I was doing with Craig um, it, I was you know obviously thinking at the time I'd go on to do a second album with Craig um, and that you know that album was really blowing up because there was a little bit of a delay between you know the sort of straggler stuff was coming out first and Craig's followed on um, so at that time I was kind of focused on that I thought you know it's actually just it's much more lucrative far less stressful um, you know working as a as a kind of producer songwriter and um, you know I was getting quite a lot of notoriety in that field you know that's when the Ivers were coming and and to, you know um, I was getting a lot of uh, people coming from you know through from America um, that I had the potential to kind of write it with and I was over in New York working with Christina Milian and, and uh, you know various other people and yeah I just thought well you know what it's, I kind of just want to be back in the studio making music and, and kind of enjoying life a bit. So yeah, it just seemed a natural time to leave that behind. The first time I got to properly sit in the studio with you in the UK after you'd been based in Ibiza, you'd said, oh, I had this young lad in the studio. He's really, really good. He's got lots of ideas, ginger hair. Um, Ed, Ed <laughs> yeah. someone. And you and you, and you you did, could just be the bass line with Ed Sheeran, which I was like, wow. Yeah, just before you got signed. Um, so when he was that was at the time he was working on his um, his kind of like EP sort of grimy EP and doing um, you know doing those kind of mm. mad YouTube videos with example um, you know and obviously working yeah, with Jamal yeah, yeah. and Liam at um, SBTV and stuff and you know things were kind of bubbling under for him and yeah I got the opportunity to 
to right could just be the baseline with him. And yeah, what a great lad. You just had artists flowing through your studio, didn't you? Doing sessions and working together and you possibly working on a track and it it just seems so creative when I you know, when we were first uh, hanging out at your studio, it just it always seemed very creative. Yeah, cuz it, it had been quite, you know, I'd had a bit of a gap. I you know, I'd worked on other other projects like the Sticks and obviously lived in Ibiza and, and kind of written with all sorts of people. Mm. Um but really kind of, you know, like having a family and uh, you know, getting married and stuff. I just kind of, I definitely took my foot off the accelerator a little bit and just kind of sat back. And yeah, that was sort of the time I was kind of getting back into the idea of making dance music. Got to work with like um, later on Emily K, Becky Hill. Um, oh God, like tons of people. Arrow Benjamin came in, did a session. Um, yeah, there, Terry just, Walker. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Terry, well, Terry Walker and Daneo. Because uh, and Daneo, yeah, yeah, of course. Loads of stuff with Daneo. You did. Um, I wrote sort of seven or eight, eight tracks with him, and uh, and then he introduced me to Terry Walker and brought her down. And um, yeah, yeah, it was just. You know, it was it was great to actually be in, you know, be able to make kind of dance music again for the sake of making it. You know, no pressure. Um, you know, doing it on my own label, Workhouse, and um, working with Matt Boyle, another Southampton guy. Yeah, and um, yeah, it was just you know, I, I, yeah, it's really nice. Like it's kind of just working, you know, working sort of slowly and um, you know, thinking about you know making dance records again. Yeah. So. What we're trying to say is to clarify, you know, today you are producing as Mark Hill. Previous to that, you were artful, you know. Yeah, that, see, that was, yeah, that, that whole thing, you know, like not being able to use Artful Dodger because unfortunately, you know, without going into too many details, if you do want details, check out the Garden interview. It's, a, it's, a, it's an eye opener. There you go. Um, uh, yeah, basically, uh, 2001 was really when we, when the Artful Dodger finished. And since then, I've not made any records as Artful Dodger. Um, unfortunately, you know, um, at the time, Pete carried it on. Pete, Pete went back to do stuff as Artful Dodger and um, something happened between him and uh, Public Demand at the time um, and it meant that uh, Public Demand got hold of the uh, trademark for the name and actually put a new DJ, Dave Lowe, um, who wasn't part of Alpha Dodger at the time. Um, kind of, you know, put him as as the, you know, he became the Awful Dodger DJ. And uh, unfortunately, Alistair, who, who had done some MCing for us and um, appeared on some of the records that originally had Craig's vocals on that we had to kind of remove and um, we got Alistair to redo them. Um, yeah, went on to be the kind of Awful Dodger MC and um, yeah, they carried the name on. So yeah, when I was doing the stuff with Ed Sheeran, I was doing stuff as Artful, thinking, oh yeah, that'd be cool. I um, mean, it's kind of obvious. I obviously wanted to pay homage to the fact that um, Awful Dodger was, was uh, you know, Mine and Pete's baby back then, um, but yeah, even unfortunately, they had uh, also trademarked Artful. Um, it became apparent really? after a couple of years. Yeah, which is why I then it was. Um, you know, that's why I had to start kind of producing as Mark Hill after that. Okay, and that's when you know that that was you know part of the reason Pete and I got back and uh, started doing stuff as original Dodger. That's right. Um, to to kind of sort of you know like explain that. Um, you know that we were the original music makers and uh, you know we were kind of back doing some new stuff and I kind of put like because I, I was working on an album as kind of Mark Hill uh, which I then put on hold you know in favour of uh, doing a deal with Warners and doing the original Dodger stuff so now is that is that back what I mean to say is what what's happening now how's things happening for 2019 <laughs> well so original Dodger we left, we parted company with Warners so we tried you know tried that for a couple of years um, which is just insane that was like nearly two years um 
Um, so, but Pete and I are still doing stuff as Original Dodger. We got like a number of dates in in 2019, and, and we're going to start kind of putting some music out independently. Brilliant. And then I'm back. You know, I reignited the idea of doing stuff as Mark Hill and um, launched last year. Launched a, a brand new label called 60 Hertz. 60 Hertz Music. Yeah. And we've put like three. You know, we've got a single out at the moment with Nat Slater, who incidentally was the bump on the It's All About the Stragglers album. So she like at there the, you go. At the time, Lynn Eden, who sang Outrageous, was pregnant in the photo shoot and uh, her then unborn baby is now 18 and appearing on my new records um, as Nat Slater. There you go. Wow, that, that's a good story, isn't it? Yeah, which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. And she's, I mean, she's phenomenally good as well. So uh, I've done about six tracks with her that are going to come out um, over the next year or so. Good. And um, yeah, and just working on new music and, uh, you know, just, uh, just keeping it simple, just doing it as Mark Hill. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, just putting stuff out on 60 Hertz this year and, um, you know, back out DJing, you know, uh, looking at a few uh, events and club nights and, um, you know, potentially a US tour in uh, January as well, which is uh, January, um, June, sorry. Oh, brilliant. So, brilliant, brilliant. yeah, so, uh, so that'll be fun. But yeah, just, just loving it. Well, what can I say? Mr. Mark Hill, aka one half of Artful Dodger, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for appearing on the show. Uh, if people want to find you on the internet, and get in contact, how do you prefer people to, to find you? So most things are Mark Hill Music. So I've got MarkHillMusic.com um, on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, MixCloud. It's all at Mark Hill Music. Um, I think Facebook's the only different way is Mark Hill Tracks because someone already had Mark Hill Music. But generally, if you Google Mark Hill Music, all one word, then you'll, fi- you'll find me. Uh, that's got, you know, all the socials will, uh, will appear. There you go. You've got no excuse. Mr. Mark Hill, a huge thank you. And uh, hopefully catch up soon. Amazing, mate. Yeah, come down and visit us in Cornwall. Definitely, 100%. Nice one. Secrets of a Dance Hit with Ridney. Huge thank you there to Mark Hill. I will definitely be heading down to his studio in Cornwall soon. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe however you listen to the show, be it Spotify, iTunes, whatever. Please leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Of course, if you've got a question or a suggestion for a guest, suggestion for whatever, really, email me, paul at ridney.com. Secrets of a Dance Hit has been presented by myself, Ridney, and produced, as always, by Mr. Carl Hannigan. Uh, I'll be back in two weeks for another show. Join me again if you can. Till then, see ya.